Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Patty Peltekos and I'll be your host this hour. On today's show, Kyle Weens will be talking with me about his work fixing stuff, especially electronics and computers, and how fixing those things led, led him to the movement for the right to, to repair all kinds of stuff, including cars, wheelchairs, and tractors. Kyle is the co-founder and CEO of iFixit. His work repairing things has also led him to advocate for the right to repair. At the end of December 2022, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed the Digital Fair Repair Act. The law will go into effect in New York State on July 1, 2023. It's a milestone for those seeking the right to repair the many items that companies, especially tech companies, don't want us to fix. But there are some issues with the legislation. We'll be talking about those issues on today's show. Also, early in February 2023, Congressional Representative Bobby Rush of Chicago introduced legislation titled Right to Equitable and Professional Auto Industry Repair, also known as the Repair Act. Rush's legislation would, quote, require a motor vehicle manufacturer to provide to a vehicle's owner certain direct, real-time, in-vehicle data generated by the operation of the vehicle that is related to diagnostics, repair, service, wear, and calibration or recalibration of parts and systems of the vehicle. In other words, the right to tinker with your car. And right to repair legislation of some sort has been introduced so far in 20 states in 2023. So we'll also be talking about the Memorandum of Understanding between the John Deere Tractor Company and the American Farm Bureau. Like the New York legislation, there are big flaws with the agreement. Flaws so big, you could drive a John Deere tractor through them. That is, if you could fix your John Deere tractor. So on today's show, we'll be talking about the right to repair. And WORT listener, because today's show was pre-recorded on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, We won't be taking your phone calls during today's program. We'd still love to have your comments. You can email us at talk at wortfm.org. Kyle, welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat. Oh, thank you for joining me. Me too. So first, just tell me the story of how you got started working on computers. Well, I, I had actually worked at a uh, at a authorized repair shop when I was in high school, and then I, I went to off to university, and I brought my laptop with me. And uh, of course, as you will, I was I was working on the on my bed in my dorm room, and I dropped the computer onto the power plug, and it was it was loose a little bit. And I said, well, I could probably open this up, and and it's just a loose joint. Maybe I could use a drop of solder and and, and fix it. I started trying to take the computer apart and immediately ran into the challenges. It was just complicated. There were tabs and latches and cables going all over the place. And so I looked for a repair manual for it uh, to walk me through how to do the repair, and I couldn't find one. And that was that was very frustrating. So we uh, uh, 
I managed to bumble my way through the repair, got the computer fixed, but I said it shouldn't have to be this hard. And I did some research as to why the repair manuals weren't available. And I learned that Apple had sent lawyers uh, to, to censor them from the internet, that they had sent DMCA takedown notices to everyone that posted the repair manual online. And I said, this is crazy. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I couldn't do anything about their manual. And so what I did was I uh, started writing my own and uh, I, I took the computer part again, took pictures, posted online, uh, they got very popular, and the rest is kind of history. I fix is now the largest repair resource in the world. Wow. Amazing. So in, in writing manuals, did, did you encounter any sort of, um, uh, I guess, opposition from computer companies, especially regarding copyright? I mean, did they... Were they kind of grumpy at you for putting this information out online, or were they happy about it? So when you do your own thing, uh, you own the copyright to it. So if you pop open the hood of your car and you take pictures, you own the copyright to those pictures. Right. So there was right. nothing that they could do. Once I started writing my own manuals, there was nothing legally that they could do to stop me. Uh, I don't think they were very happy because I was undermining this, this, you know, they'd stumble across this strategy of planned obsolescence where they could use lawyers to prevent people from knowing how to fix things. And so then they'd have to go and buy a new one instead of fixing the thing that they had already bought. Uh, so we, we quickly kind of ran into this situation where at, at the like corporate level, at legal and marketing and management, they didn't like what we were doing because we were undermining their business model. But if you would talk to the actual technicians or customer support, the people who just want to help customers, they loved what they were, we were doing and they sent people to us all the time. And, and remind me, when, when was it that you started doing this? So the, I, this was an iBook back in 2003 and, uh, and still, I mean, it's been 19 years of us publishing repair manuals online that, that Apple doesn't want you to have. And are you also publishing manuals then for, for other kinds of computers besides Apple computers or are you strictly, I mean, from looking at your website, it looked like you cover everybody, but. We cover everything. Yeah. So we started with Apple products. Uh, we got, by the time I graduated, we were totally comprehensive with Apple products. I like to say Apple was the first company that had complete open source online service manuals for all of their products, but it's because I did it for them or to them and they had no choice in the matter. Uh, and, but that was very successful and very popular. And so, so we said, well, let's open this up to everything else. And so we made iFixit into a wiki modeled on Wikipedia and uh, you can add repair manuals for anything. So I was looking this morning at a schematic for a chainsaw. We have information on how to fix toys and vacuums and washing machines. Um, anything that you could have that might break, we've got repair guides for it. Wow. And I, and I also saw that you're, you're getting into mending, which is um, a whole other interest of mine, but not really so much in the right to repair realm, I don't think. There's, it's, it's relevant uh, because the question is, can you get the parts that you need? So iFixit has a huge amount of sewing tutorials, everything from how to thread a bobbin to how to fix a sewing yes. machine. We've got oh information on how to fix tents, how to replace zippers on jackets. We have a partnership with Patagonia where they, they came in and taught us how, how their master sewers do it. And, and all that repair information is online. Now, with clothes uh, and, and uh, just like everything else, the question is, can you get parts? If you, right. if you need a new zipper for a jacket, can you get it from the manufacturer? Patagonia has committed to doing that. You can get parts from them, but they're pretty rare. I would say so. And as someone who sews, I would also say that uh, getting getting high quality sewing parts um, in some cases is very difficult. I mean, you can find them, but if you go to uh, 
what might be, for many people, perhaps the only places where they can buy fabric and sewing goods, uh, say Walmart, Hobby Lobby, Joanne, um, sometimes the, the quality of, of the, uh, the items that you'll find there is not what you might be looking for. Well, and that's where, you know, if you can, uh, you know, part out things that you already have, all right, pull parts or, or buttons off of other products. So, you know, some clothes, like men's dress shirts come with spare parts. Dress shirt comes with two extra buttons. They do. That's fantastic. It would be nice if more things in life were like that. Well, and then, and I guess this, you address this on your website, it sounds like, you need to have the sewing skills to to know how to replace those buttons or or what to do in the case of, uh, say, a button that has come off and there's actually a tear there, how do you then go about fixing it? And that's a skill that um, I'm, I'm not sure, especially kids and younger people, if they're learning those skills in school anymore. Yeah, no, there's, there's a generational gap. When I give talks, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give a talk and there'll be people in their, in their 50s and 60s in the room and I'll, I'll ask them, how many of you know how to sew? And almost all of them will raise their hands. And I'm like, cool, how many of you taught your kids to sew? And they all kind of shamefacedly put their hands down. So there is a generational gap right now that we need to address. And so teaching young people to sew, I think is really critical and really important. Uh, and I've traveled around the, the, the country I've done. Uh, I, I remember I was at a, a Patagonia store in, in Santa Monica and we were running a repair shop. Uh, so we, people would bring in their stuff and we'd help them fix it. And one kid walked in with a pair of Vans shoes where the, the canvas was pulling out of the sole. And I taught him how to sew it. I was like, watch and we're going to do it. And he sat there and he sewed the thing back together. And they said, all right, now the Vans store is directly across the street from the Patagonia store. Go into Vans and tell them that we taught you how to sew your shoe. Oh my gosh. Wow. Did he? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was just really kind of this moment of like the default consumption would be just go buy another pair of shoes, but it was really easy to fix. Right, right. So getting back to you and repairing and your manuals, um, when you first started writing the manuals, did you have any qualms about doing that? Uh, no. <laughs> no whatsoever. Uh, no, I mean, the hard thing for me was learning how to take good photos. At the time, you know, smartphones weren't as good as they were, so I bought a Nikon camera, and, and I had to learn how to do that. That was the hard part. So uh, if you're methodical, you figure out how to take things apart. It's no problem. And we have a network. I mean, we have volunteers, tens of thousands of people all around the world that write repair guides for all kinds of things. Uh, and, and it's really just having the, the gumption to be willing to teach someone else what you know. So... Does iFixit translate, or or do you work with people who are fixing things, say, in, in foreign countries, working in a completely different language than English? And is that something available on your website? Absolutely. iFixit is in 12 languages, including English. Uh, so we're in Japanese and Korean and Italian and Spanish and Dutch and all kinds of languages. Uh, and, and that's something our community is actively doing. Now, it's important to translate relevant products. Like, for example, in Europe, they don't have very many Honda Civics. So it doesn't really make sense to translate our Honda Civic repair guide into Italian. But our iPhone repair manual, there's lots of iPhones in Italy. And so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, yes, we have a thriving translator community. Uh, and actually, we just posted uh, something today about our translators because today, I think, is the International Day of the Mother Language. We, were t we just posted about our amazing translators. Oh, fantastic. And so how long ago was it that you started integrating translators and translated versions of, of manuals 
into your work at iFixit? Yeah, so it's been a gradual systematic process. You know, we started with Apple products and we expanded to other things. We made it a wiki. We gave everybody an edit button. So anyone, like you can go on iFixit and you can click edit and improve a guide or you can hit the create button and post your own photos. And then it took us a little while longer after that uh, to be able to enable translation. So I, we probably had translation online for five years, I think. Uh, and our, our community has translated tens of thousands of guides into we even, I mean, we have our officially supported languages, but we also have communities with some African tribal languages. Oh, wow. Into, you know, they, they've got like hand water pumps that are really important to the village. So they've got documentation on how to fix those. Wow. Okay. Something, something else to look at. How neat. If you are just joining us, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison and WORTFM.org. This is Patty Peltecos, and I'm your host this hour. Kyle Weens, who is the co-founder and CEO of iFixit, is talking with me about the right to repair. And while we aren't taking your phone calls during today's show, we'd still love to hear from you. You can email us with your comments at talk at wortfm.org. So, Kyle, um, before we really kind of dig into the whole right to repair, I have to ask you, because you, you have already mentioned planned obsolescence. And I'm, I, I want you to talk more about planned obsolescence with me because I'm in my 60s. When I was a kid, I remember hearing the phrase planned obsolescence quite a bit. And in the 1960s and 70s, when I was growing up, my parents and I think people of their generation, and well, I guess probably most people, um, would would try to repair things as much as possible before actually getting something new. But there was still this this whole idea of appliances, cars, items in your home that would that would fall apart, and that at some point you did have to replace it, and that the manufacturers knew that. And so, yes, they were planning for items to fall apart and you'd have to replace them. And it seems like now in the, you know, quote unquote, high tech computer era, planned obsolescence isn't so much about physical items as much as it is software. And, and yes, the physical item itself might fall apart. But in the meantime, you, the owner, are going to be upgrading, supposedly upgrading, and updating system software that you've signed, you know, a 20-page a, a document saying everything about what you will and will not do with this software. So is the planned obsolescence different now, or is it just basically the same, only we've just transferred planned obsolescence from the physical item or still with the physical item, but also to software. Yeah, that's probably a good way of, of, of saying that. There, there definitely is a transition. The, the reason that you're seeing right to repair legislation is the movement of software into all of our products. Uh, I'm a software engineer. That's my technical discipline. So uh, this is near and dear to my heart. And we have definitely seen as, as computer chips move into products, there are new and different barriers that make it harder for us to maintain our things. And, and we, need to, we need to push back on that. The laws that govern what we can do with our stuff is different than the laws that govern what we can do with our software. Uh, and, and that means that, that uh, 
our, our cultural norms and our laws are out of sync with each other. And, and that, that's what right to pair laws are about is, is sort of restoring that balance in the universe. Right. And so on the iFixit website, do you go into how to, I guess, really kind of how to fix software or, or what to do with, say, say my iPhone um, needs a system upgrade? Um, probably pretty easy for me to do that. But say something goes wrong and I'm not sure what the problem is. Will there be something on your website to help me with that? It depends. I, I would say when it comes to the intersection of, of software and hardware where something physically isn't working and you need a software fix, I fix it has information on that. But when it comes to how to use all the software in our, our lives, there's a lot of fantastic you know, special purpose websites for that. And so we tend to steer clear of it. But I would say anything where, where the, the software is getting in the way of you being able to turn the thing on, that's directly in our wheelhouse. Okay. So I know President Biden has come out kind of in favor of, of right to repair. Have, have you, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on where the federal government is and especially the Federal Trade Commission in, in kind of changing the mindset of people having the right to repair the items that they own? Right. So what has happened is we, we've been introducing right to repair legislation all over the place for a decade now. Uh, and manufacturers show up and they and they oppose it. They, they say they have all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, uh, restore our repair rates. Uh, and they have generally been successful. Uh, you know, over 100 state bills have been defeated by manufacturer arguments. Um, and uh, so the Federal Trade Commission noticed this. And they also noticed that there seems to be just this this imbalance in uh, in the repair market where there's less and less competition over time uh, you have manufacturers making fraudulent claims about people voiding their warranties if they fix things which just isn't true and so the ftc decided to do an investigation into this so they, they did a, a multi-year investigation and then they held a workshop and they put out a report called mixing the fix where they evaluated all the arguments that manufacturers have been making to stop these state right to repair bills and they found that without exception the manufacturer arguments were without merit and, and that it really was uh, a, a legal and lobbying tactic to continue to enforce this obsolescence regime. And then following up on the FTC report, uh, the Biden administration issued an executive order asking for competition across all markets, but particularly focusing on, on right to repair in the electronics and agriculture sector. And so here we are. Uh, now the FTC report is out and, uh, and states are factoring that in. And now you're starting to see state level legislation pass. Okay. So give me, give me a sense of like, what is happening in New York and, and what the issues are with the New York legislation that, that will be going into effect later this year. Sure, absolutely. And before New York, Colorado passed a right to repair bill for electric wheelchairs. So this is the first bill that had actually passed. This was last summer. Uh, and it said, hey, if you have an electric wheelchair, you should be able to get parts and information from manufacturers. And that law went into effect last month, uh, and it started to help people, people that didn't have access. Like there would be like, settings on your wheelchair that you didn't have access to because it was hidden behind a password. Now the manufacturers have to give you that password. So, so this is really life-changing for people. So just on a tangent here, until I had been reading about, about some of your work, I guess it had not dawned on me that um, wheelchairs might be you know, something that, that would have 
right to repair issues attached to them. They've got software and computers in them. Think about your electric wheelchair with a joystick and right. uh, all kinds of settings. You give traction settings and calibration of different tires. Imagine you put different tires on your wheelchair and it doesn't drive quite right. Uh, yeah. It's like having different shoes on, right? You put, yes. It's just intensely frustrating. And it's not the kind of thing you need to get a service technician at. You just want to be able to you know, make a, a small tweak on your mode of getting around the world. Right. This is hugely empowering. Uh, and it's it's a particularly dystopian situation because people with uh, electric wheelchairs also have to go through their health insurance to be able to schedule a service call. All the things that are terrible in society, like no one likes dealing with health insurance and no one likes dealing with manufactured service monopolies and so you multiply them together. And it's just been awful. So that's why the, the electric wheelchair bill sailed through in Colorado. It's been a huge success. Following up on that, then New York uh, passed a broad electronics right to repair bill um, later last year. Right. And and what are your comments on on that bill? I mean, what does it get right? What does it get less right? Sure. Yes. And New York has an interesting process where the legislature passed a bill that was quite good, quite broad across the board. And what it said is, hey, if you're going to if you're a manufacturer selling electronics in New York, you need to make parts, tools and information available to everybody. Uh, and it covered uh, consumer electronics, it covered IT equipment, it covered a broad uh, spectrum of products, and it covered uh, everything that was, um, I mean, it, it covered both the products that we have now and products that would be manufactured in the future. Wow. The, uh, unfortunately, New York has a special process where the governor can make changes to bills after the legislature has passed them. I don't know, it's, it's called this, this um, chapter amendment process. I, don't, I haven't heard of another state where the governor has so much power and control. It's kind of like a line item veto on steroids. And uh, Governor Hochul uh, listened to manufacturer lobbyists. The Electronics Manufacturers sent her in a very long list of changes that they wanted made to the bill, and she did most of them. Uh, and that, that really watered down the effectiveness. So the main things that it changed is rather than, than the law applying to all, pro all electronic products, it only applies to products that are manufactured after July 1st of this year. So if you buy a new laptop today, it would not be covered. If you buy a new laptop in July, it would. Wow. Uh, she also exempted uh, the kinds of, of IT and enterprise equipment that schools and universities use uh, to keep the lights on. Uh, so only uh, she narrowed it to only focus on consumer electronics. So that's problematic for healthcare. Hospitals rely on a lot of this technology. So we're looking forward you know, where do we go from New York? I mean, fortunate thing is, is governor did sign the bill. It covers consumer electronics, it covers everything manufactured after July. So it's a good step in the right direction. It's just not as far as we need it to go. And, and so you have many other states that are, that are considering more broad right to repair legislation that would also be retroactive. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, a bill passed out of the house in Colorado this morning. Oh, wow. So, there is there is momentum, uh, and and these bills are are uh, we were just commenting we were chatting about this earlier that it seems like pretty much every bill is making it out of committee this year. Well, that's fantastic. So, just to step back for a moment, you were talking about um, the New York legislation not not taking effect for schools and universities. Did I hear that properly? The, the what they the modification was they said the bill only covers products that are sold at retail. Okay. So imagine like a file server, you might have like an HP ProLiant file server or an IBM, you know, data center equipment or something that, that you don't buy at retail, that you have a custom contract negotiated on. The bill does not cover that. Uh, and so that's problematic for, you know, all the, 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 the switches and the things that sort of connect our lives together that operate behind the scenes. 
uh, that are really important to be able to fix. Right. And at iFixit, I mean, do you hear from from people who are working, say, in healthcare or in schools who are contacting you because maybe they have, well, you know, they have all this high-tech computer-driven equipment. Um, are they always able to to access what they need to to repair their own stuff? Or are they also covered by somewhat draconian agreements where they, they are not allowed to fix these things? We hear from them every day. <laughs> every oh, day wow. we're selling parts to schools that, that need help where they can't get parts from manufacturers. Um, uh, the, the folks who fix things at hospitals are called biomedical engineers. Uh, it's a, it's a profession, it's a career track. There's are phenomenally uh, capable people and they fix all kinds of things. They fix vital sign monitors, they fix ventilators, uh, and, and they systematically have difficult difficulty getting information from manufacturers. Um, so we've launched a biomed, a medical, uh, repair resource on iFixit. And we have thousands of repair manuals for everything from hospital beds to ventilators. Um, but, but it's, it's not enough. We, we need a medical focused right to repair law. Wow. Okay. And, and how would a medical focus right to repair law be different from a, a consumer or a, well, I, I don't know, I guess a, 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 I guess a consumer based repair law. Well, and this is where it's interesting is, you know, we talk about these different sectors and it's almost like we have to rediscover these principles over and over again. Like should farmers be able to get access to the information? Should hospitals be able to get access to the information to fix their stuff? Yes. Should you have access to what you need to fix your laptop? Yes. Like fundamentally, it's the same problem across all of these. And so for me, sometimes it's a little bit exhausting to have the conversation over and over in every different context, because the, the fundamental principles are the same. Like you bought it, you should be able to fix it. Uh, in the case of medical equipment, the hospitals are the consumers and they employ professionals whose job it is every day to fix things. They talk about how nurses are clumsy and drop stuff all the time and they're fixing whatever it is that the nurses dropped this week. That's fine. That's what they do. That's how you keep a hospital running. Uh, but the same tactics that Apple has used to stop people from fixing their iPhone are also being used by other companies. Uh, Philips, the medical device manufacturing companies for fixing x-ray machines. Excuse me? Philips has two federal lawsuits right now suing companies for federal uh, uh, copyright infringement for fixing x-ray machines. That's, well, okay. So, so I guess I, I do want to go off on the copyright tangent again, because in a past life, I worked as an editor. And at the time, I, I was, you know, copy happy. I would make copies because that's what I did. And I would tell people, don't worry, the copyright police will not come after you. And now there are times I will be on websites and I'll think, oh, oh, my God, you know, there, there are all these copyright restrictions and I'm not copy happy anymore. I'm much more copy averse. And I'm, I, I'm wondering how much of that is, is playing into um, our, our right to not be able to repair what we've got. Like, how much is trademark and copyright a part of this? Yeah, so this is where computers are screwing everything up. They're bringing, uh, you know, the world of IP of, of, of trademark and copyright is, is more relevant in the digital age than it was previously, right? If you had a chair, you wanted to fix the chair, paint it purple or whatever you wanted, IP law had nothing to do with that. But now if you have a computer, you need to worry about it. 
So there are two areas that, that copyright law is, is impacting the world of repair. One is around access to service information, like Apple you know, sending takedowns, restricting access to service information. I actually think that Apple is misinterpreting copyright law and, and that there is a fair use to redistribute and, and repurpose service manuals. Um, and and uh, so I, I don't think we really need a legal change there. We just need to change the norms and the practice and the expectation that repair information is available. Uh, and that is starting to change. Apple has started uh, just last year, started releasing repair manuals again for the first time since the 80s. Uh, Samsung is working with us directly to release their repair information. Microsoft uh, and, uh, and Valve and Motorola have all agreed to re release their repair information. So we are starting to see a change there. Um, and so I would say when it comes to service information, please be copy happy. It's okay. They are facts. They're generally not particularly copyrightable. Uh, there's a, a, a significant fair use right to distribute and modify service information. Okay. But, but. but. there's another copyright law that is a major problem that we do need to deal with. Um, and, and this is more esoteric. And, and uh, so for those of you, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a section of, of the updated digital Millennium Copyright Act that was passed in the late 90s called Section 1201. And that law, this is the law that Philips is suing these medical device companies for violating. What the law says is that you cannot break a lock that protects access to a copyrighted work without permission from the manufacturer. So what Philips is saying is these, these folks who are fixing equipment at hospitals, that Philips has put software locks on the x-ray machine in order to fix it. You have to bypass that password to be able to get in and fix it. And the act of bypassing the password, even though there was no copyright infringement involved, is violating this particular statute. Uh, so this is a fundamentally flawed law. Section 1201 of the DMCA should just be flat out repealed. There have been bills in Congress repeatedly over the years to address this. Uh, I've gone to D.C. and testified repeatedly. Uh, we're making progress. We're ho hopefully something will get, get introduced this year. But, but you see it being abused in radical ways. Abused in radical ways. I mean, I, I think what you've told me about Philips and the x-ray machines certainly sounds like a radical use. But, but how else are you seeing it play out? Uh, so there, there's an auto parts company named Dorman. If you've gone into AutoZone and look for parts, you see the Dorman brand on a lot of products. They were making a tra replacement trans transmission for GM uh, trucks. And G uh, they included the, uh, a way of transferring the software because these transmissions now have computer chips in them moving the software from the old transmission to the new one. And GM sued Dorman under Section 1201 copyright infringement for selling a replacement transmission part. Uh, and, uh, and Dorman ended up capitulating and agreeing to, to stop selling the part. So that's what drives repair costs up, right? That drives your insurance up. Uh, and right. that unfortunately is the future, right? Like the internet of things is if a thing can have a computer, someone's gonna put a computer in it. Uh, and the moment that you do that, uh, and there's a lock involved, then you, you, you can be uh, fall afoul of Section 1201 if you're trying to fix something. Do you see any move to changing the way the stuff that we own is is now filled with computers? Do, do you see a kind of a, a parallel movement to create or continue to use um, sim yeah, well, sim yeah, exactly. Dumb yeah. stuff or, or simpler, less complex um, appliances, electronics, uh, tractors, you sure. name it. Where yeah, no, I'm a fan of that. If you look at older tractors, the tractors before they put the computers in it, they're worth more. 
uh, and they hold their value much better. The farmers are intentionally biasing and preferring to buy older equipment. Okay, we, we will come back to that. We'll come back to that. Again, if you are just joining us, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison and WORTFM.org. This is Patty Peltakos, and I'm your host this hour. Joining me today is Kyle Weens, the co-founder and CEO of iFixit. And he is talking with me about the right to repair just about anything. And because today's show was pre-recorded, we will not be taking your calls during the show, but we would still love to hear from you. You can contact us at talk at wortfm.org. Okay, let's turn back to tractors, because um, a couple of years ago, I, I hosted a show where the right to repair tractors came up, because I, I used to do a lot of shows on food and farming, and... Tractors are one of those items that, um, you know, uh, farmers invest a lot of money in. And, of course, they tend to break down, as these things do, when they are most needed. And if a tractor is sitting in a field and the farmer has to wait in line for the repairman to come to get him or to come to fix what's sitting there in the field... He's losing valuable, or she is losing valuable time, and that time might not be something they can make up, depending on what the conditions are. So, so talk to me a little about the John Deere Memorandum of Understanding and and the good things about that, and also the bad things about that. Right. So, ag right repair. I mean, it's it's mixed up in all of this. You have you have uh, increasingly it's the software that's being added to the tractors. Generally, you can get repair parts for tractors, but you can't get the repair software. And so, you'll hear stories of having to have the dealer drive out to the farm and charge you nine hundred dollars to plug in his laptop and punch in the code and walk away. And the tractor works now. So that's the kind of thing that's really driving everybody crazy. And it's the computerization of high tech agriculture uh, that's the challenge. Um, so the, the, the fix for this is is simple. The same software that the, the dealers have that they punch their code into, the farmers should have access to that. Uh, and so the farmers have been repeatedly asking for this, and, and John Deere and others have been have been stymieing them and refusing to provide access. Now, why are they refusing to provide access? Because they make a lot of money on these $900 service calls, because there's, there's a lot better margins in service than there is in selling new equipment. Uh, and so they're, they're attempting to preserve that monopoly that they have. Uh, and, and I would say fundamentally across all of this, we're talking about monopoly, right? Phillips wants to have a monopoly on servicing the x-ray equipment. Apple wants to have a monopoly on servicing iPhones. Uh, and, uh, and John Deere wants a monopoly on, on servicing tractors. And so, so that's why this is an antitrust discussion. This is happening at the Federal Trade Commission, where their goal is to, is to improve competition across the marketplace. So the, the, the poor farmers who just want to fix their tractor uh, can't get the software tool. They can't get the equivalent of the software wrench that they need to fix their equipment. So there, there's been right repair laws uh, introduced uh, across the country. John Deere has, has stopped them. You know, these bills are being introduced in Nebraska and Kansas and, uh, and Montana, all over the place. Senator Tester from Montana has introduced a federal right to repair bill. Um, and, and the same arguments, it, it's amazing. You could copy and paste an argument that Apple makes why you shouldn't be able to fix your iPhone, uh, and, and John Deere would say the same thing. So it, it's the same policy debate happening over and over in different sectors. 
So John Deere's creative way to avoid regulation is uh, is that they have uh, signed a memorandum of understanding with the American Farm Bureau, the, the National Farm Bureau, where they've said, hey, we'll voluntarily give the, the farmers some of what they need. Uh, unfortunately, they're not agreeing to give the farmers the same software that the dealers have. They're agreeing to give them a watered-down customer service version of it, uh, which we don't know if it will provide what they need. Um, it does. It does sound like that they're they're agreeing to make some information available that farmers didn't have, but it certainly isn't the level of access that they need, which is why uh, laws, you know, bills are continuing to progress around the country. And so, what you're talking about with tractors and and I guess basically everything else. Um, also applies to cars, right? Yes. And and so so we, the consumers, are stuck in this kind of middle ground of yes, you have bought it, yes, you own it, but no, you can't take it to an independent repair shop to fix it because we're not going to let them fix it. Yeah, so cars are interesting because we're farther along on this with cars than we are with other products. We actually have existing right to repair laws for cars. A lot of these uh, these bills that are being introduced are actually modeled on successful automotive right to repair legislation. Um, what's happening in the car world, though, is that the, com- the computers are advancing and the manufacturers are finding new ways of working around the existing laws. And so uh, a couple years ago, uh, Massachusetts passed a ballot initiative where people actually voted Hey, do you want to update our right to repair laws to factor in the latest wireless uh, repair systems that the manufacturers are using? And uh, people overwhelmingly, I think it was passed by 79% or something. People overwhelmingly approved it. Uh, and the manufacturers are tying up that law in court right now. Um, but but that that's the kind of thing where you can you can see a cat and mouse game between between the people that want to fix things and manufacturers that are going to find new and clever ways of stopping you. So as far as tools... Um, how, how do manufacturers work that where they don't make the tools available or the tools that you need might be so expensive that it's, it's out of the average person's, you know, budget to be able to buy this stuff? Well, you have to design a product to where it's repairable with, with tools that are commonly available. Uh, and and you know you see you see new techniques where where they'll they'll say well there's some specialized tool that you need to work on this. Uh, the German car manufacturers are particularly good at this. They make it hard. They make it expensive. You have the specialized wrench that's the only thing that fits in there. Uh, and now now increasingly there's high tech tools that you need. So that's where some standards uh, come in and really help. Uh, so one of the things that is, has been the greatest boon for auto repair the last uh, you know, 30 years has been what's called the OBD port or the onboard diagnostic port. It's underneath the steering wheel in your car. Every car has it. It's the same port in every car. And you can uh, buy a $30 reader. And when your check engine light comes in, you plug a reader in and there's standard codes. And you can look and you can say, like, I'll give you an example. My wife's car threw an error code P1393. And I looked it up and it was a, a transmission speed sensor error. And so I, I went down to AutoZone and I got a new transmission speed sensor for 20 bucks. I popped it in the car, the check engine light went away and it was done. So like, that was great. The, 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 the computer told me exactly what I needed to fix. I had access to standard information. I didn't have to know anything about how you know, cars work. I just had to you know, swap out the part that was failing. Because that's a standard, the tools are then affordable and everybody has access to them. So, so standards, you know, laws that create standards, that OBD port was created by the right to repair laws. 
when laws create standards like that, it can really democratize and improve access to repair for everybody. And is there is there a difference between what is happening here in the U.S. and say what has happened in Europe? Are are the laws any better for for repairing in Europe, or are they comparably bad as what we have we here have in the U.S.? We have laws for cars in the U.S. and Europe, so they're generally pretty good for cars both places. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have right to repair laws that protect anything else anywhere else. So this idea of right to repair for farmers or right to repair for hospitals, it's new in the U.S., it's new in Europe. There are advocates that are working that have been pushing on this, but there's so much money entrenched on the other side that manufacturers have been slowing down progress. So the European Commission is, uh, has had a number of procedural report uh, of votes supporting right to repair, and they've talked about including it in their eco-design rules, their environmental design rules, and some of their labels. Um, so there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of momentum, but there hasn't been like our broad sweeping right to repair law passed in Europe yet either. Okay. And and what about continents like, like Africa or in places like India? Do, do you have any idea what is happening there? Yeah, there's a relatively new South African uh, right to repair law for cars that's exciting that's kind of bringing them up to the same uh, playing field that we have in um, in America. I would say from my travels across the rest of Africa, they tend to bootstrap on top of our, our rules and whatever's available. So when I talk with the technicians, they say, where do you learn to fix things? They say, we just search on the American support forums and places like I fix it. Well, cool. Happy to help. Um, it, this is an issue in India. India's Consumer Affairs um, uh, Agency just launched a right to repair website last week. Uh, and so they are thinking about it. They're just saying that the government's going to start hosting repair manuals uh, directly in India, which will be cool. They haven't posted them online yet, but we are uh, keeping our, our eye out. So I, it's definitely a worldwide movement. There's a lot of interest. There's clearly identification of a need. The manufacturers have kind of gone from, you know, opposing it to now you got folks like Apple saying, well, maybe we'll halfway support it. We'll start putting information available. Um, but uh, we're still at the beginning, I think, of, of compliance with what what clearly needs to be the new way the world works. Yeah. And and what are your thoughts on being able to repair things so that we aren't, you know, just wasting resources, putting out new new stuff that may or may not actually be better than what we already have. Well, so this is where you know, we've talked a lot about responsibility and things that manufacturers are doing laws that we'd like to change. But really, it starts with our personal behavior and, and what we, we decide to use and buy. So the best thing that you can do is, is buy longer lasting things. Um, uh, the most green uh, smartphone that you can possibly buy is the one that you already own. <laughs> um, <laughs> So hang on to the stuff that you've got, find ways of using it longer, fix things when it breaks. If you don't know how to fix it, find a repair cafe in your area or a fix-it clinic. Uh, these are pop-up volunteer events where you can go and bring something and, and repair it alongside a friend. Okay. Wow. All right. Um, boy. Okay. Again, if you are just joining us, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison and WORTFM.org. This is Patty Peltakos, and I'm your host this hour. I am talking today with Kyle Weens, who is a co-founder and CEO of iFixit, and we're talking about the right to repair and repairing stuff. Ah, so Kyle, when it comes to teaching people, are are you at iFixit or are other people um, working with kids? I mean, are are there classes that you are aware of in schools 
where kids are learning how to fix their stuff? Is this something that that you know of teachers are paying attention to and and trying to make headway with teaching kids to fix stuff? We would love to see more of that. We certainly know school, you know, after uh, school clubs or, uh, you know, UAS clubs where kids are, are fixing things. I'd love to see more of that. We work with about 80 uh, undergraduate universities where we integrate repair into into technical communication curriculum that's been widely successful. Um, but I, I think it, there is a need for for adapting our practices as we as we think about teaching STEM in schools. Well, the best way to learn how to make something new is to take something apart and see how they did it. Uh, so we, we'd love to see more of that. Uh, our goal is that by making a fix it available, it's a resource. I, I was just I was in the science museum in San Diego the other day, and they have a, a take apart lab where they have all kinds of tools and you can take stuff apart. And I walked in and I'm like, oh yeah, and we use I fix it to learn how to take things apart. So that's our goal is by making a uh, free public resource with instructions on how to open anything that that enables uh, educators because you don't you know if, if you're going to be a seventh grade science teacher, you don't need to be an expert on how to fix iPhones. You just need to be able to connect students with the information online, uh, and then the students can can teach themselves. Wow. And and along with that, you you at iFixit are also selling, um, you, you sell parts and stuff online, right? So how did you get into the whole world of, of selling parts as part of iFixit? Well, in order to be able to fix something, you need you need sort of the confidence to do the repair, uh, but then you also need the, the knowledge, you need the tools, you need the parts. And so we wanted to provide all of those in one place. So uh, uh, on, on our repair guides, if you, uh, if you need a part to, to complete a repair, um, you know, if you're installing a new screen in your iPhone 8, we'll, we'll link you with a kit that comes with the part and all the tools that you need to fix it yourself. And that's the goal is, is connect the dots. I want to make it so easy to fix things that that's our default uh, reaction rather than, rather than uh, you know, the thing that we do sometimes when we can't afford an alternative. And I realize this might be a little bit of a stretch, but um, with, with your work on Right to Repair, are, are you seeing any movement with manufacturers, you know, kind of the, the full cycle of, of manufacturers finally agreeing to take equipment back? when it no longer works, that, that they will be responsible for figuring out how to recycle and and dispose of those items. Yes, yeah, so there are um, there are 25 states that have passed electronics recycling laws. Um, uh, Wisconsin is one of them. So there's an electronics recycling law that says manufacturers have to take their products back. Uh, so you can generally take your electronics back to Best Buy, uh, and and they'll they'll take them back for free, and they'll recycle them properly. You can take them to an Apple store. You can take them to any manufacturer electronics store. They're legally required to do that. And there's there's funding and recycling targets and things. So there's a there's a system there. Um, uh, so I, I, the manufacturers not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because there's a law that requires them to do it, uh, and it's a pretty good law. Does does the same. I mean, is there a law that also applies to things like major appliances and cars? I don't know. I mean, again, this regulated state by state. Cars generally have enough scrap value in the, in the steel that it's worth money. You can generally get paid by a, a junkyard to take a car. Um, appliances, you know, usually that's handled at the municipal level. So. Um, okay. Okay. And and also with with cars, I mean. Now that we are, we seem to be moving from, you know, gasoline and diesel-powered 
combustion engines to electric vehicles, do you think it's only going to get worse with people not being able to repair things once we have cars that are are based on an electric motor? Yeah. So again, we need standards. If we have standard motors, if we have standard batteries that you can swap out, that you can interoperate, then that's fine. But if every manufacturer is making something totally different with a custom called a battery management system, that's how you charge the battery. If every manufacturer does it differently, then yeah, we're going to be in trouble. Um, and, and so that's something that, that I think needs, needs further work. Uh, we should, we should have, we should have industry standards for, for how cars talk to batteries so that, cause we should be able to repurpose these batteries when they're done as, as car batteries. Wouldn't that be great to use it as a power wall in your house? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I think I think it'll, hopefully you'll be seeing more of that, but it definitely needs to be a push to have more standardization. And is there any any chance of that becoming international as opposed to say just national standards? Do do you think there might actually be a push for a more international standard that would that would cross boundaries? It would make sense. Generally, what happens is a jurisdiction passes a law and then it becomes sort of the de facto, sort of minimum uh, bar around the world. For example, uh, you don't have lead in, in your electronics anymore, but it's because Europe passed a law called Gross that banned lead in solder. And everybody uh, didn't want to make different products in Europe and the US. And so all the manufacturers just switched from using lead in their solder. It's still perfectly legal in the US to make electronics with, sol- with lead in the solder, uh, but nobody does it. Okay. So Kyle, we are pretty much at the end of the hour. Um, we've covered we've covered a lot of topics. Is there anything that anything else that you would like to add that uh, that I haven't asked you about on today's show? Well, I'd just say, you know, the next time you have something that breaks, you know, give, give it a shot, try taking it apart. I was looking at our stats and we had over 500,000 people in Wisconsin use iFixit last year. Uh, so that's, you know, maybe 9, 10% of the population. That's pretty cool. Uh, so your neighbors are already doing it, uh, and and you, what do you have to lose? It's already broken. Uh, the worst that happens is it stays broken. The best that happens is you don't have to buy a new one. Right, right. And you learn how to fix it. Are are there areas that you at iFixit are going into that uh, that we haven't talked about that you think are pretty neat? Well, I mentioned I mentioned our our hospital equipment. You know, tens of thousands of repair manuals for those uh, power tools. Uh, everything from air compressors to power drills to floor sanders. We got repair information online for that. Uh, uh, yeah, the sky's really the limit. Uh, I couldn't really tell you what we don't have repair information for. I fix it as is broad. Think of us like the Wikipedia for repair. Okay. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thanks I've- for having. Oh, it's been great. I have learned so much from talking with you. This has been wonderful. And I I really hope that uh, people will be using iFixit and fixing their things rather than throwing them out. Yeah. I hope so. And I hope we get a rights repair bill. We have never had a rights repair bill introduced in the, uh, in the Wisconsin legislature. So maybe someone listening can change that. Maybe, maybe it can happen. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. I have been talking with Kyle Weens, the co-founder and CEO of iFixit. We have been talking about right to repair legislation and right to repair just about anything. And that is it for today's show. Thanks so much to Jade for producing. Thanks to Sholly, WORT's news director, for their help with today's show. And WORT listener, of course, thank you for listening. 
You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airways from unknown positions.